once we get it through planning and once we get it through zoning approval, then we have an approved concept that the municipality, in this case, Martina says, yeah, you guys can build that. So we take that and immediately we're going into structurals while in parallel we're 3D rendering the house. And as soon as those renderings are done, by the time we're submitting for a permit, it's on the market before we've even started building anything. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Dave Brady, one of the partners of DB2 Contractors. They're a general contracting team that specializes in large renovations and small development projects. In this episode, he'll share how he takes projects through the entitlement process and pre-sells them before they even start building. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. Enjoy. All right, Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what do you do. My name is Dave Brady, and I'm a partner in DB2 Contractors. And we are a general contractor that does large renovations, additions, builds custom homes, but we also invest in single family homes for flipping purposes. And we also have some small development projects going for our own account, like uh, condo developments in Concord and a six house development going up in Pleasant Hill. Super exciting. So, how did you guys even get into construction? I have a background in technology. I've been kind of a serial entrepreneur, but I met my partner who was 25 years, started with knee pads on doing uh, carpet for realtors. Then he started doing carpet and paint. And in 2008, he uh, got his general license to spread his net out. We joined up and, you know, he had some of the experience. I had the ability to build an organization because of my past history and it worked out really well. So we've grown to be quite a bit different than when I met him versus $30,000 projects for realtors versus, you know, multi-million dollar projects, which are a lot more fun. Do you want to briefly give us some of your background? Like what were you doing in technology and how did those skills transfer to real estate? Well, I started selling... <laughs> Imaging myself, disk drives and tape systems for Deck Data General and Hewlett Packard mini computers, probably before you were born. Okay. And then uh, built up and sold a uh, back office accounting system to TWA and Northwest Airlines. And then uh, started an internet service provider in 1995 and built that up to 100,000 dial-up subscribers and 1,000 business, you know, basically T1 subscribers and did that for a while. And then I was EVP of uh, marketing and, and sales for a startup in uh, Sausalito where we did online surveying and market analysis and uh, that was a VC-backed company. So, you know, I just kind of done a lot of that stuff. But I bought a big house in Lafayette and got the remodeling bug, put way too much money into that. And then I decided that technology and vulture capitalists, you know, I was kind of done with that for a while. And I kind of headed into this and I have a lot more fun doing it. So what kind of the skills did you think transferred really well from your tech background into real estate investing? Not so much technology. That's what I was kind of geared to do. That, that's where my interests lied. So I was in those industries, but it was more just 
organizations. I was also a VP at BizDev for a startup in Pleasanton where we were trying to sell the company to uh, Cisco Systems. And in the other one that I dealt with, which was the survey and, and uh, online analysis uh, company called Market Tools, we dealt with large organizations, Procter & Gamble, Quaker Oats, big Fortune 100 companies. So learning how to work within organizations and make stuff happen was a valuable skill set that I kind of acquired. And also seeing how, how organizations are built. It's pretty darn easy in the world, in the real estate world we're in, because my organization is six to eight core people. And then the virtual people beyond that, kind of our virtual company that spreads out beyond that. So just seeing how people work together and how to delegate responsibilities and make people accountable and drive results, you know, that's that's all part of the corporate world, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're taking your lessons from the corporate world and putting it into your own business in the future. Yep. That's it. Are you guys focusing more on construction or investing at the moment? We're both. Uh, the retail side of the business, we really enjoy doing. In the presentation that you saw, one of the things we're focusing on is working with realtors to develop uh, nice pieces of property and pre-sell it and develop strategies around improving cash flows. You know, I love the creative side of that. I do a lot of design myself. I work with architects. So I like designing houses and, you know, we like building houses that range from, let's call it uh, maybe one, five, one, seven, five, up to maybe as much as 3 million. That's a, a nice sweet spot to, you know, operate in, although we could build anything larger than that. It's all a matter of scale and the type of client you're working with. So we like doing that, but we also like finding these pieces of property and doing these little development deals where, the margins are good enough that the exit is secure enough where even if there's a market correction, if you do like a condo development that, um, say, has 12 units and the exit price on the units are ranging from maybe 650 to low eights, maybe even 900, depending on where you build it. That's a real solid exit strategy, even a year or two out, because in the Bay Area, there's going to be demand in these pockets even in a, in a minorly recessionary environment. In San Francisco, 2007, 2008, across the city, the correction was probably a little bit, only a little bit over seven and a half to maybe 8%. Whereas you went into Tracy in the Central Valley, you know, it's 30, 40, 50% decline in value. So um, if you're trying to sell a $6 million house in San Francisco, that's rare air. But if you're trying to sell a million, million two townhouse, or condo or something like that in the city, depending on where you're at, it's very liquid. And over here in the East Bay, you know, we have condos that are going to be going up for probably mid sevens, you know, six unit developments, 12 unit developments. Even if there's a correction down to high sixes or so, there's still money in it for us. So the risk is lower because of the incremental unit volume sales price. You know, when I was doing some calculations, I was having a hard time kind of figuring out how the numbers work in, let's say, places like the East Bay, like Hayward, or some places in Oakland, because you're still paying about 270 a square foot to build it out, aren't you? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, sometimes a little less. No, on condos, we can do less than that. Gotcha. Can you maybe go over like a case study of a development plan that you guys did with some numbers with some like, maybe some estimated profit that would come out of it? Well, I can tell you that just in general, we look for um, even in our flips, when we run our pro formas, we look for a net ROI 
of 15 to 20 plus percent. Now, if you get over 20, you're doing pretty well because even with a 10% market correction, you're okay, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's ones, you know, I'm sure you've been exposed to where you kind of look at it and you go, look, this is in a, I'm working with somebody in uh, in a really good place in Moraga near all the schools, a very high end area. It's got a view of the Lafayette Reservoir. It's got a view of the hills around, partial view of Mount Diablo. It's an acre lot with a flat backyard. It's 2,500 square feet, just a little under. It's completely trashed. She wants to get rid of it. I can joint venture on that one and have that come in at maybe nine, 10 percent ROI, and we'll both make money because it's a it's an extremely desirable marketable area. And you probably won't see any kind of correction in that area. It may be a slower time on market, but it's got an exit price of maybe a million seven. In La Mirinda areas, you can't find anything under a million two these days. It's a single family home. So it's all about risk reward and it's all about keeping that ROI at a place where the market if the market hits you, you still are okay. So let's talk about that deal. Can you maybe share some of the numbers that you did? So, so we have a kind of understanding of what is the scope and what is the order of magnitude that takes to do a development project like that? This is kind of a JV flip. It's getting a house that needs a lot of work. And this is just an example. You know, It may not work out this way, but it's a good example. So the first thing you do is you go in and you look at it and you go, in this neighborhood, what would be the perfect house? What would be the most marketable house? What would it look like? And we have a lot of realtors we work with, so uh, and we've looked at enough deals. So our opinion is a good conservative number is let's say one six five to one seven. So I'll just round it to one seven. There's actually a house that would be three four hundred square feet less that went for one eight. So let's say one seven's my exit, right? So then I look at the house and I go, okay, what do I need to do to bring it up to one seven? I'm probably going to add let's just say 500 square feet to it and do a a lot, you know, so I'm going to completely remodel the interior of it. I'm going to add 500 square feet. So let's say my cost of doing that is 275,000 to do all the work on that. Well, if you set a million strike price with the owner and a profit share above that, you're in for 1275, 1.275 and your exit is 1.6, 1.7. You know, you you work with discount brokers and there's room to make money for both parties, you know. So the owner is guaranteed a million bucks for the house. And right now it's probably after uh, real estate fees, the way it sits right now, she'd probably net barely that as it is. So you you set it a million, you figure out the rehab and then you, you know, build in a, a JV. So I don't have to take down a million dollar property. All I have to do is deal with the holding costs. Right. So it's a great deal for both parties. That's right. And you also mentioned that you you strategize with realtors to pre-sell homes. Do you want to talk more about how do you guys pre-sell homes? There is, for instance, a house in Danville out near um, Mount Diablo. I think it's a half an acre lot. And uh, the lot owner wants to sell the lot. That's their vested interest. But to do something with that lot, you have to get a buyer who has to be able to envision what's going to be put on that lot. Well, the best thing to do is to go to realtors, you know, your, your key partner realtor in that particular deal and say, again, if I were going to put a house on this lot, what would it look like? How many square feet would it be? Would it be a four, two, you know, four, four with a den and a great room, blah, 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 3,500 square feet, 
single level wherever we could do it based on the hillside. Okay, what would that comp out to if we built that? Eh, say two six. Okay, so the lot owner wants X, but the re- really the lot is only worth what you could put on it. A lot of lot owners look at it and they go, my lot is worth this. Well, it's only worth what somebody would pay for it to build a house on it, and the house costs a certain amount. And so you that really backs you into the what the lot is truly worth, not what the lot owner thinks they can get. And if you have a reasonable person and you can prove that, so okay, how much is it going to cost me to build a a uh, 3,500 square foot house on that lot with high end uh, finishes, landscaping, entitlements, everything else. And what kind of room is in that for us? Um, and then what we do is we say, okay, we've cut a deal. Here's the numbers. So how do we pre-sell it? Well, since I'm involved in the design process, I have a team that does photo quality, interior and exterior 3D renderings of the property. So we will actually, once we get it through planning, and once we get it through zoning approval, then we have an approved basically structure. It's a, or we have an approved concept that the municipality, in this case, Martina says, yeah, you guys can build that. So we take that and immediately we're going into structurals while in parallel we're 3D rendering the house. And as soon as those renderings are done, by the time we're submitting for a permit, it's on the market before we've even started building anything. But we're taking it through entitlements. And if you're in a good spot, people will engage. It will sell. And the reason it'll sell is because there's a lot of buyers out there in that market. They're not rushing. They're, you know, there's a certain segment of buyers that say, wow, I can get a custom home. And they love what they see. But then they come to us and they go, hey, could we do this? Could we change that? Could we tweak this? Could we make this room a little bigger? And next thing you know, you know, as long as there's full disclosure as to what that entails, money-wise, time-wise, et cetera, we typically don't change the footprint. We don't really change the elevations that much, but we can do a lot of tweaking in a house that brings somebody to what they feel is their perfect custom home. And we know that because we've taken houses. We have a house in Oakland that we took, bought it as a foundation, built it up, We've had a lot of people go through it and it's selling as a new build, basically a spec home, but everybody always walks in and goes, you know, I love the house, but could you guys do this or could you do that? Now, keep in mind, it's a completely finished house, staged and everything. And we're kind of going, oh yeah, I guess we can. You know, it's it's going back to the drawing board and spending more money for something that's already on the market versus getting additional monies for those changes before you even start building. So it makes sense to take a house get it on the market and assume you're going to take it through foundation. And by that time you have a client, the lot owner gets his money when the client buys in and it turns into a construction contract for our company. And so what is the cost and timeline to go through entitlement process? Six months, 75,000 bucks. Okay. And what is that cost breakdown? Uh, Well, you've got, you've got architectural, you've got engineering, structural engineering, civil engineering, some survey stuff, uh, you've got grading and drainage. So there's all the professional fees on that end. And we have pretty good prices because we work with the same people all the time and they get repeat business from us. But typically, if you're in the retail world, to design a 3,500 square foot custom home that's got a sales price of two and a half million, um, architect could reasonably charge you 50,000 just for the architectural. Then you got another fifteen, twenty thousand for structural, and and so you could easily spend in the retail world uh, over a hundred thousand to get that house to a place where it's ready to, you know, you got a permit, and you're ready to go. 
And then what we do is we build the permit cost into the sales price. But a permit for that kind of house could run you forty, fifty thousand. And when you're talking about permit, you're talking about it went through planning and now you're going through the building process. Yeah, as soon as you get plan check and you get the, the approval of the structurals, the drainage plan, the civil engineer, how, am I, how are you going to hook up the utilities, blah, blah, blah. As soon as you get all that in place and they say, yeah, you're good to go, you go in and pay your permit fee, pick up your permit card and go get a shovel and start. And how is the agent finding the buyer for that property? We put it on the market as a custom home. It says new custom home and we throw up the 3D renderings in the interiors and there's a decent percentage of the people that look at those renderings and go, oh, I want to come over and see it. And we go, oh, no, it's ready to be built if you want it. You can see what it looks like. It's ready to go. Interesting. And then they're down. They're like, yeah, I like the location. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you've got somebody who says, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to wait nine months to get into my house and I can customize it. Oh, my wife will love that or whatever. For the right buyer who's willing to wait, that's the only downside. Everything else is all packaged up. We even have the financing lined up through like First Republic and U.S. Bank where, where they actually pay the construction costs on the interest side. So it's all packaged in. How do you finance a property if it's just land? So somebody comes in and says, I want to do this. It used to be that like First Republic wanted the buyer to come in with 35%. Well, it's now down to about 25%. So let's say it's a $2 million house. We finished one up in Oakland. It's almost finished. So the buyer comes in with a half a million cash. And if you're, if you're at 2 million and north of that, these buyers have the dough. They have to. They're not getting you know FHA 3% down loans when they're buying these houses. So they come in with the cash. And basically, you build the front end to handle the cost of our entitlements and what the landowner wants. And the rest of it is a construction contract that's actually built into the sales contract. So, you know, I come in and I buy this house for two million bucks, right? And it's ready to go and I get to customize it. Okay, so what, what's my financial obligations? Well, we set up construction financing through First Republic Bank. They want, say, 30% down. So you got 650,000 down. The lot owner gets his half a million. He's done. He gets his money. We get 100 grand up front, which we say, look, you're buying the plans and you're buying the permit. But we'll give you a hundred thousand dollar credit towards the building of the house if you use us. And we've done all the work. So unless we're total idiots and they, you know they don't like my gray hair or whatever, we end up building the house. Um, but then it's a construction contract on the back end that's financed by First Republic, as an example. That's smart because like you're offering the opportunity, but then you also get the bid at the end. Yeah, that's why we're doing it. So there's a little bit of risk, but we've structured the deal so much so that it, you, nobody wants to wait, walk away from 100000 or $150,000 because they have a brother-in-law who's a contractor. Right. And you already know the project, so it's going to be very easy for your team. Yeah. We know it intimately. We've taken it all the way through permitting and everything. We have the architects. We have everybody. So it's kind of a fait complete. We don't force anybody, but we structure the deal saying, here's the Gantt chart, here's the allowances, here's the construction timeline, here's the contracts. You don't have to go look. It's just ready to go. And so it takes you about nine months since that time when they purchase it to complete the project? Assuming we're breaking ground then, yes. Gotcha. And so how big is your team? Inside the company, it's about six to eight, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and then we got a big virtual team outside of that. Like my, my design team, I've got 
an architect. I got three people doing nothing but architectural and 3D rendering work. Two of them are in, are in Serbia. And then I've got soils engineers or a pain. I've got civil engineers. I've got structural engineers, realtor team. You know, you got to have a good marketing team. We're constantly looking at our realtor, our portfolio of realtors. I don't know if that's a very complimentary way to put it. It's a team of realtors that we work with who know what they're doing, who, you know, know land and know different structures. And these are, these are typically people that specialize in land sales. So they already know it going in and they see the value of doing this. They go, wow, I can have a house that's already set to go. You know, that's the big problem. You show somebody a, a hillside and they go, what the hell am I going to do with that? And we, we show them, here's what you're going to do. Here's what it'll look like on the hillside. Like I saw in your presentation, your renderings look super realistic. And I think the coolest part was where you can see like the view yes. uh, from what it would look like if it was there. In that room. Yeah. You look out the window and there's your view. So we'll be all over the hillside taking shots of the property and then turning around and being up on the hill and taking shots. Okay. Here's where the master bedroom is kind of. What's the view from there? You put, the, you put the house on the property. You got to make it as real as possible. And this is a constantly evolving technology. I mean, I'm not satisfied with our exterior renderings because honestly, people who are completely unaware of this kind of technology may mistake it for a photograph. People who are you know, aware of virtual staging and who are in the industry and know technology a little more, they'll go, oh, that's a rendering. But when you get to the interior, because that's all man-made surfaces with photos looking out the windows. There's nothing in there that's a giveaway. The hard thing is doing, you know, good renderings of nature. You know, the grass looks a little fake. It's like the difference between real glass and that, you know, turf stuff they use. You go, that's not real. You can tell. So we're working on making the exterior stuff as photo quality real as possible. So I'm constantly pushing them to do that. Nice. Now, going back to your team, who do you have internally and what do you think are the most important parts to having a good real estate investing or construction crew? Flipping houses is not an easy business. You can't do everything yourself. It can't be the quintessential entrepreneurial org chart where it's me, me, me in every box. You need to divide and conquer based on skill sets. So, you know, you need to have an acquisition team. So you need to have people that know how to acquire houses at below market and have a network of realtors or can go in and buy from somebody. We dabble a little bit with We Buy Ugly Houses, and we bought a lot of houses that way. So learning how to buy a house from a distressed buyer is an art. Uh, so you need acquisition people. And then you need people who can realistically assess what needs to happen to the house, what you want to happen to the house, how much that'll cost and how long that'll take. So we have my partner is a you know chief operations officer. He's I do kind of strategic planning, sales, marketing, that kind of stuff. He does operations. So he and essentially three other people on our team are part of the you know general contractor side of implementation and supervising side of the business. So it's pretty darn easy for us to go into a flip and see exactly what you need to do. But assessing costs is critical. And then a lot of people lose it when they don't realize that, you know, depending on what town you're in, how much time you should allow for what's necessary on the permitting side. You know, going in and just doing a scrape, you can do an over-the-counter kitchen and bath remodel as long as you're not really messing with anything. 
And that's pretty easy. Hopefully you get decent inspectors. But if you do anything that requires, for instance, the house I was talking about, uh, you know, we're trying to sell for a million seven, we're doing an addition. So we're going to have to do as-built plans. Then we're going to have to do structurals and, and addition plans and get those approved as quickly as possible while we're lining up to get the work done. And so you have to know your, and my partner knows, and he knows San Francisco, he knows Oakland, he knows Berkeley, he knows all the East Bay, El Cerrito, a nightmare. Took us, you know, a, a one-story addition in a little house, 1,200 square feet, took a year and a half to get a permit in El Cerrito. So you got to be aware of that. So you've got the people who kind of assess the deal. And then you got to have your team of realtors who are giving you what you all have to believe is a competent exit. You know, what's the ARV? You know, what, what, is, what is that after renovation value going to be? And can you hang your hat on that? And are you hoping for it? Or are you putting a conservative number in and the numbers still work? And you even have a hedge factor. You have to look at that hard. And every single person out there who does this, if they say they haven't lost money, they're full of crap. Because there's about two or three things that can go sideways. And if they all go sideways, you know, that little green number turns into a red one with parentheses around it. So each person, each part of the team has to be responsible. Are agents your main source of deal flow right now? Yes, but we also have an advertising program. And we're spending about 10000 a month sending out uh, postcards. And we get calls back and we go out and buy calls. And we bought about uh, we buy about a house a month doing that. Nice. So you have uh, 12 deals a year. Is that typically what you guys do? Yeah. Yeah. When you're doing those kind of deals, those are not, those are exits that are typically under seven. But like we got one in Hayward that's probably worth 900 But usually those are ones you pick up for maybe 250 to 400 maybe 450 and you know typically you want to buy them at 60 65% ARV less renovation you hope and half of them you wholesale i mean we're going to wholesale one i think it's going to close the end of this month we'll make 65 grand just on an assignment which is great we bought it right so a flipper is going to buy it from us and we're pocketing you know a nice chunk of change just on the assignment yeah so we're trying to keep that going well, that's a lot on our plate, right? Flipping houses, doing developments, doing custom homes. Exactly. And so what are your, some of your main challenges right now? Getting stuff going. You know, it's entitlements, it's architects, it's engineers. They all take too long. A guy told me one time, he said, there's two types of soils engineers, conservative and very conservative. And I don't know anybody out there who says, oh, I've got a soils engineer for you. He's amazing. He's awesome. Or she is. No, it's like, okay, this guy's okay. I used to be in the software business, as I mentioned before. I don't see a lot of difference between C++ programmers who are up in their head all the time and structural and soils engineers. You know, they all just think differently and they can't time manage themselves out of a bag. And you have to constantly be saying, come on, come on, when are you going to get this to me? So. That's that's the big challenge, keeping keeping municipalities moving and keeping, you know, the engineers moving. My architects are actually pretty good. And so what are you doing on a daily basis? I put it together a to do list that ha typically has between 12 and 16 items on it. And I try to proactively get through more than half of those. And the rest of the time I'm putting fires out. <laughs> so it's just, you know, try to be more proactive than reactive.
on a daily basis. Try to do strategic stuff like doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah, something new, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's candy for me. Cool. And so what's next for your company? I think we want to see how many custom home projects we can manage well at one time. And then layer on top of that, it's a matter of scale, right? So what's next for the company? More revenue. But, you know, sometimes there's two uh, very challenging things that can happen to an organization. They either have too much revenue and they're effing it up. Evidenced by the fact when I was in the internet business, we couldn't hook people up quick enough. So literally we had a 50% per month attrition rate with 125% growth rate per month. And so, you know, that's, that's too much revenue, right? You just can't deal with that. So when everybody was getting on the internet in 1995 and 96, you know, people were signing up uh, huge amounts, but then you'd lose them because you couldn't sign them up and service them well enough. So that's one side of it. The other, the other side of it is you don't have enough revenue, right? That's probably the more common problem. So, you know, growing and controlling your revenue is, I think, what's next for us. And bigger development projects as you learn how to reduce risk. All the development projects we're doing right now are under 10 million on the exit. You know, and like a five house development in Pleasant Hill where the houses will sell from, say, a million two to a million five, probably a little above that. Those are relatively low risk because of how we have it structured. But doing development projects where you have, you know, partners in there that are confident that you can do a $25 million development project. I mean, that sounds like fun to me. To me, that just sounds like fun if it's the right deal. I mean, we're looking at some stuff in Oakland that may pop into the 15 million range. You know, there's still a lot of room for um, townhouses, maybe apartments. You know, we're looking at deals there. And your project in Pleasant Hill, is that also going to take you nine months to complete? Oh, no, that'll take us longer than that. We'll start moving 17,000 yards of dirt off a hillside the end of April next year. So we've got it all entitled. But we're using the same pre-selling strategy. We'll actually have it up on the market next month as custom home lots before we even build the road. In a perfect world, uh, which it never is, but you might as well start there, say four months, four to five months after we, so mid-summer next year, we'll have the roads in and the pads down and we'll start probably start building the houses. Hopefully we'll get them roofed and wrapped before the rains hit next year. And we'll have them done probably a year from next June, all finished up, depending on when they sell. Is it hard juggling all of your employees if you have to have so many different projects going on at the same time? No, because everybody has their area of responsibility. Like I've got my supply chain people and we're set up for a system to project manage. So our Gantt charts are published online and we have systems in place to make sure all the supplies and decisions are made up front. For a customer made, you know, customer, you know, what, what are your cabinets going to be like? What are your countertops going to be like? You know, what decisions do you need to make about all your finishes? We, we get ahead of that curve. You know, we're not running into problems and everything's waiting to go. Um, so if you have systems set up for that, then you don't have to have a lot of people handling it. You just engage the, the system. And we're always tweaking those. But yeah, I mean, building six custom homes at the same time, 
there, there could be some challenges there. You always, you always learn. I mean, we're, we're not a pulty or anybody like that. You know, we're just a small little company in Concord, hopefully having fun at what we're doing. Exactly. So you've been doing this for quite some time now. I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. Uh, is there something that you wish you knew back then that you know now? Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of stuff, but it's, it, you, you'll never learn it without making the mistakes or becoming aware of the adjustments you need to make as you go. You know, you can't go to school for the business that we're in. I mean, you, there's, there's the gurus out there that say, yeah, read my book, do my tapes, and I'll tell you how to go out and flip houses. Well, I, I guess my favorite example of what starting or working in a new industry, because I've, I've had a courier company, I've had software companies, I've, I've, I've done a lot of different things, and I've, I've bought franchises. And you know, I look at it this way. If you have an idea, just an inkling of an idea, and you think there's a marketplace for it, you can assume if you go down the road of actually doing it, only 75% of what you thought would happen will, you know, 75% of it will go wrong. 25% will go right. If you have a really proven marketplace and a really good idea and how you're going to slice part that niche, then only 50% of what you think will happen will go wrong. And if you buy a franchise, because I've been there, only 25% goes wrong. And that's with a franchise where it's totally turnkey. So you don't learn through your successes, you learn through your failures. Do you want to talk about any of your failures that taught you a lot of lessons? Uh, being in the printing industry too late. <laughs> I mean, the printing industry was dying just about the time that I was ramping up. So I ended up selling that. And I, it was kind of like a barely break even. You like a Kinko's, right? Yeah, I, I had one of those, actually. It wasn't a Kinko's. It was a competitor. Um, but digital printing and all that stuff is pretty much dead. The only people who are surviving now are people like Vistaprint. So that was an interesting one. And what was the lesson learned from that experience? Yeah, I, I tend to go with something that seems like fun to solve and fun to get into. I'm, I'm much more diligent about where the marketplace is going and talking to, once I feel, Phil, I've talked to enough people about what I'm going to be doing, then I say, okay, talk to five more. You know, just get as, met, as much information as you can about what you're doing, because as much gray hair as I have, there's plenty of people who know a lot more than me. So you get pretty humble as you get older about what you don't know. And you got to assume you don't know most of it. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned is, is uh, let go of your ego and suck information from wherever you can find it about what you're up to. I'm sure right now you feel like there's probably something you don't know at the moment. Is there something in particular that you wish you knew now? How to do bigger development deals, but I'll only figure that out through doing the ones we're doing now. The entitlement process on a development deal is very difficult and it's very time consuming. Time is really money depending on how it's structured. So bigger development deals where you've got banks and financial partners that realize and understand this, know that for the person who's working the deal, for the team that's working the deal, you know, you have to be able to survive while you're doing that. So there has to be, you know, uh, more than just the payoff at the end when you sell it. So you have to figure out how to structure the deals. That's what I'm kind of concentrating on learning more of. 
because the rest of the stuff is just fun. I love building houses and I, I know how to do those now and I know how to work with architects. That's just, that's just gravy. Learning how to structure deals so you can do a $20 million, 30, 40, $50 million development deal. It's knowing the right people and knowing how to structure it. Do you think it would involve you maybe partnering with someone that's bigger than you and shadowing them? Absolutely. If there was something that we could add as value, you know, to whatever is going on, you know, the, uh, the one thing that I have realized is that um, joint ventures can catapult you a lot faster and more meaningfully than trying to do everything yourself. You know, find somebody who's got a skill set or an asset. I mean, look at what we did with these lots. You know, I love joint venturing with lot owners. It works great. It reduces risk, all the things that I talked about. So, you know, you don't really know what you can bring to the table until you see the nature of this situation you're working in and saying, oh, I see a gap there. I see a skill set gap. I see a money gap. I see something that they don't have that we can bring to the table. So we're, we're always looking at stuff like that. Love going out there and networking, talking with people, because eventually I'm never surprised, although I used to be surprised at, uh, wow, would you ever believe that, you know, Dan and I, my partner, we look at it and we look at the way we met eight years ago going, could you ever predict that we'd be where we are now? No way. You know, it's just like life brings that you have to be open to the possibilities. And that's the fun part, I guess. Yep. And do you have any tips for any new investors who want to get into entitlements? Find somebody who's done it before. Be a grunt for them. So you're, you don't have risk, but you're adding value. You know, be the person that's willing to sit down at Oakland for the whole freaking day just to talk to a planner. You know, reading the regs and understanding what you can and can't do is pretty much a linear thing. But yeah, just find somebody who's done it before and go out and work with them. Because the amount of time it'll take and the number of projects it'll take for anybody to figure that out, starting from ground zero, you know, maybe five years from now, you'll have enough traction to realize what's going on. But, you know, for us to take a, a 10,000 square foot lot in Concord, literally almost across the street from the planning department, and it's got a house on it and an ADU and turn that into six condos. Our first challenge was Concord tried to make us put all the, and you wouldn't, nobody would ever know this. You go in there and they say, oh, if you want to do this project, you have to bury all the utilities on that corner. Well, then we had to bring somebody in that made it, you know, made, they say, well, if you bury this one, you got to take that one down. So to bury the utilities is going to cost a half a million dollars. So we went into Concord and said, you know, you, you just created a non-starter. This isn't going to happen because you want us to bury the utilities. And they said, oh, okay, never mind. You know, so they're going to try to land grab any money they can get. I mean, do you know that Oakland now requires every sidewalk of a, of a new owner buys a house and the sidewalks out of compliance? You have to redo the sidewalk in front of your house as of July this year. That's not a cheap number. So you need to find people who know this stuff, right? And ride their coattails. Otherwise, you're going to spend a year and a half, which it takes to entitle that condo project figuring it out as you go and inevitably making potentially fatal mistakes. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, basically just find someone that's doing what you really want to do and try to find a way to add value to them. And I guess in this case, it could be as simple as 
willing to sacrifice your whole day to uh, sit in a waiting room. Yeah, I mean, I I, I know some people I'm going to work try to work with in Oakland on some uh, on some entitlements. I said, look, we have the we have the knowledge and the ability to do it. We just don't have the bandwidth to take this project on because I know what it's going to entail. And uh, the person or persons we're talking to to joint venture on it. They say, well, I'm doing five projects right now, so my bandwidth's kind of lean too. So you just got to network out there and find somebody where you say, hey, I'll give, you know, I'll give you a slice of the pie. I mean, it's about the number of projects and making money, not doing a home run on every one. You know, share the wealth, and then people come back and share the wealth with you. And what is the most difficult part when it comes to working with the city? Well, in Oakland, it's structural engineering because they have real, they don't, they don't have enough structural engineers to do plan check. You could literally de- deliver a very simple structural package and it'll sit there for 90 days and do nothing. And then maybe they'll look at it. It just depends. You have to know the, know the environment you're getting into. Oakland's worse than San Francisco right now. It's, 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 it's a very frustrating situation because, you know, if you try to operate pragmatically and in a timely fashion, you better get ready to be disappointed consistently when you're dealing with the cities. Because they don't operate that way. So do you have any final tips for listeners before we end the show today? My final tip would be, of all the businesses I've been involved in, if you like something that's constantly changing, and you like something that's always challenging, and you like figuring out puzzles and, and putting deals together, residential real estate can fill your plate really well. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. I don't think I'll never retire. I'll just keep doing this uh, until I, until I can't, you know, type on the keyboard anymore, or I'm not coherent, or something like that. Yeah, it's not a job; it's a passion project. It is. It's I, I love it. It's a great time, and it pays very well. It can, yeah. <laughs> it, it also can suck your wallet, but you know, as long as you're more on the positive than the negative, yeah, it's a lot of fun and and it's profitable, and you make and you make your own hours. That's right. And ultimately, you're working for yourself. So that's the best part of it. You are. All right, Dave. Thanks so much for your time. How can people get in contact with you? Uh, You can reach me at Dave at DB, the number two contractors, plural, dot com. Anytime. Email me if somebody, if you have any uh, questions or insights or have a deal, whatever. I I love talking to people. Do you work specifically in one location? We're mostly San Francisco, Alameda, and Contra Costa County. Gotcha. All right, Dave. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all the advice you gave us today. All right, Sean. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. By spending some money up front, Dave is able to create beautiful lifelike renderings that help them pre-sell the building, even as it's going through the entitlement process. It takes away the risk of building the structure and then having it potentially sell on the market for months. By doing it this way, the buyers are also able to customize their homes however they like. If you want to get started in this industry, be a grunt. Offer to help more experienced developers do things that they don't want to do, like sitting in a waiting room all day. There's almost no risk to you, and you can get experience for your time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. 
That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.